If you're new with us, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom books uh, in the Old Testament, and uh, we've been considering life under the sun, uh, the stuff of life, life in this fallen and frustrated world. Last week, we had a look at uh, what one writer called church under the sun, um, and now we're back out into the world, as it were. Um, I was reminded just looking at the transition from uh, the, the text moving up to last week's text about the gathering together of worship and, and now back out into the world. And uh, I was thinking about how uh, youth camps uh, through the years, students would, would raise you know, the question, how do I stay close to God when I go back home? Uh, things aren't like uh, they are here. And that's a relevant question. Uh, and, a, and a good question. And we've, we've considered some of the ways that we stay close to God in everyday life, uh, not just on a Sunday when we gather together. Things like companionship will help us stay close to God. But now we see uh, a, a, another theme that we've already touched on, and that is the need for us to treasure God in the little things, to treasure God in the enjoyment of the gifts that we often take for granted the reality is God meets us not only in his house, but he meets us in his world. And we have to learn to detect and destroy idols in our hearts, and this week it's going to be money, greed, in order to treasure God and to see him for who he is. God meets us in the ordinary. He meets us in our homework. He meets us in our chores, kids. He, he meets us uh, at the workplace. He meets us in the gym. He meets us at the job. We're going to learn how to enjoy God. And what we're going to see in this text is how good God is. What an incredibly gracious God we have. So let's pray for eyes to see these things uh, this morning. Father, we uh, study your word today with great delight. And I have found such enjoyment in my toil, preparing and studying your word. I pray that it would be a delight to all who hear it now. We study the Bible not to make our heads fat, but our hearts right. And I pray you would do that work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a long time since I've read uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Maybe you're reading it this week, I don't know. Um, but it, it was brought to my attention. Uh, and in one particular tale, the uh, pardoner or the, the preacher tells a story of three lawless men who go in search of death. Uh, they are told by an old man that death lives at the foot of an oak tree. And so these three guys go down to this particular oak tree thinking that they're going to find death and kill him. And what they find at the foot of the oak tree is a treasure, eight bushels of gold. And so they decide to stay there for the night, and then one of them decides to go into town and, and get something to eat and drink. And as he goes to town, he gets there and evil begins to rise in his heart, and he begins to plot the death of the other two so that he can take their treasure. And so he buys some rat poison to put in their wine. What he doesn't know is that the other two men were plotting his death. And so the guy returns with his food and his poisoned wine, and when he gets there, they stab him to death. The other two men then lift up their glasses to toast their victory, only to drink the poisoned wine. Death was found at the foot of the tree. Well, the preacher here, Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes, also reminds us of the dark side of riches. That what many find when they seek after more and more possessions and wealth is actually despair and destruction and death. It's a primary word in this passage, the word consume, 
it's translated in various ways in English, but it's this idea of, of what is it that you're seeking to be satisfied with? What is it that you're consuming? What is it that you're enjoying? And Solomon tells us here that the good life involves enjoying God's grace. The good life is a contented life. The good life is recognizing the goodness of God in the little things of life. The good life is not found in trying to get more and more stuff. Now, he's going to say some positive things along the way about money, but most of these are warnings for us. I think it's helpful for us to remember when uh, we talk about money that the Bible gives what you might say are four general categories when it comes to uh, wealth. You could categorize them as the unrighteous poor, the righteous poor, the unrighteous rich, and the righteous rich. And so the point is not that we should adopt a poverty theology and that we should all go be poor. The, the point of the Bible is that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That we should be, as Jesus taught us, to be rich toward God. The, the issue is always on character. It's on our hearts. And so there are many wealthy people in the Bible who are the righteous rich who are able to do much good in the world. And so it's helpful to think about that. Now, the danger that Solomon alludes to is, is taught throughout the Bible, and that is how prosperity can cause us to forget God. The, the children of Israel are warned about this right before they go into the promised land, that their land of abundance could actually cause them to forget God. And we know this can happen. Uh, you recall the proverb, chapter 30, remove far from me uh, falsehood and lying, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. That's the temptation for those who have it all, to deny God and say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. Now, Jesus, the greater Solomon, warns about all, in all sorts of places in the Gospels about the dangers of wealth. We don't have time to list them all, but one of them that comes to mind is when he's talking about the parable of the soils, and he says, one of the things that can happen in the heart when a person hears the word is that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke out the word. But one of the reasons the word is not having its effect in a person's heart is that the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things it has choked out the life of that world, that word. So we want to be aware of the, the dangers of this materialistic lifestyle. Both the Old and New Testament teach us about it. The New Testament bears out more of the eternal ramifications of pursuing more and more stuff. Both the Old and New Testament teach us about how greed is not only self-destructive, but it also hurts other people. Now, I think 1 Timothy chapter 6 captures the thrust of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. Here's a good summary of, a, about what, uh, uh, of what we're about to walk through. When Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. This is, this is what Solomon keeps pushing us to, contentment. I don't know if you find your heart being worked over on this subject, as mine is. That the secret, he says, is it's a, it's a godly contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out of the world. A, a verse that's echoed, uh, or Ecclesiastes is present here. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
And like Solomon, Paul says, for the love of money, not money itself, but the love of it, is a root of all kinds of evils. Now that's very Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10, isn't it? When he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. So again here, we're seeing the importance of contentment, the importance of recognizing God's grace in the everyday life of the things that God gives us, being thankful, being grateful for those things. Now, chapter 5, verse 8 to 6, 9, uh, scholars have suggested that there is uh, what's called a chiasm that is present. And the way a chiasm works is basically how the, the outer edges, in this case, it would be chapter 5, verse 8 uh, to verse 12, and chapter 6, verse 7 and 9, they correspond to each other in theme. And then as you work your way to the middle, the interior sections also correspond. And then right in the middle is what you might call like a bullseye, which is the author's emphasis. And that bullseye is chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, where he's talking about the good life. He's talking about the contented life. And so what I would like to do is work through all the verses and then circle back to that bullseye. Uh, in verses 18 to 20. And we'll look at the whole text under two sections. First of all, the problems of greed. And secondly, the pleasures of God. The problems of greed. Solomon gives us at least eight problems with pursuing the love of money. With pursuing more stuff. Some of it is self-destructive. Some of it harms other people. And so here are the eight. I'm going to uh, just kind of scroll through the text and you'll see them. We'll, we'll get through it in, in sufficient time, I hope. Number one, oppression. He says, first of all, one of the problems with greed is that greedy people hurt people. And so here it's not so much on the self-destruction as, as much as it is as how the love of money will harm other individuals. Here it's the poor that are being oppressed. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at this matter. There's nothing new under the sun, he says. Don't be surprised that people are going to abuse power, that they're going to do a violation of, to justice and righteousness. And then he begins to explain how in this particular case, how this oppression is working. And it is the high official being watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. And the idea here is basically this, that they're watching out for each other. They're protecting each other. And so before Solomon gets to greed at an individual level, he begins to talk about the pursuit of more at a systemic level. How the unjust oppression of the poor is caused by this bureaucratic hierarchy that's motivated by greed. And this is present today. It's been present since the fall in various forms of government. You could even see it today in churches and in denom denominations. How what motivates corruption many times is the power of wealth, the pursuit of more. So instead of serving the good of the citizens here, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Solomon says, don't be amazed by this. It's hard to know exactly what he has in mind because it's not in great, uh, he doesn't give us uh, specifics, but he shows us that this this is one of the ways in which greed will harm other individuals. We should grieve over, over broken systems of oppression, and we should do what we can to promote justice. Well, he says in verse 9 something that's very difficult to understand. And then when you read the footnote in the ESV, you're even more discouraged, which says the meaning of the Hebrew verse is uncertain. Right? 
So you're studying this text and you're like, let's just move to verse 10. Uh, what does it say? But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Like, what is what is that? This I don't even know what that doesn't even make sense when you read it. But I think the idea, if we carry the idea forward from the previous verse, it's the simple idea that the king is participating in profiting from the fields. He's the one that's benefiting from the hard labor of others. It's a, it's a bit of an awkward sentence when first read, but that seems to be the idea. And many, many rulers in the ancient world took advantage of citizens. You see ample examples of this in uh, the Old Testament. You think about Ahab taking advantage of Naboth and his vineyard. And the same idea is uh, present today as well. So one of the problems of greed, one of the problems of the pursuit of more is that you will hurt other people. Secondly, dissatisfaction. Now he moves from the systemic level down to the personal heart level. How this, it's not just public leaders that are in danger of greed, but it's all of us. It's a temptation for everyone. When he says here, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. The love of money, he says, leads you empty. Greed doesn't lead to gratification. It's been said that money cannot buy love, and here Solomon is going to work out for us how money cannot buy joy. Those who love money will always want more. It was famously said of Rockefeller when he was asked, how much money is enough? He said, just a little bit more. That's very Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Money is very addictive. It's dangerous, therefore. Someone wins the jackpot in Vegas, and what do they do? Do they stop? Of course not. They play another round. So he says, the love of money here leaves you empty. And he says in verse 11, it also creates problems for you. It creates complexity. And it says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. That is, others will come to benefit from your wealth. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So the more you have, the more people will come after it. Right? Ask a wealthy person, they will tell you all about this. It may be in the form of government, in the form of taxes. It may be from family and friends or people who are trying to raise money. It may be because you have to hire all these workers on your, at your home. You have maids and grounds crew and cooks and accountants and all of that. And so the pursuit of more leaves many with a, with a, a complex sort of lifestyle with a lot of people wanting to benefit from your income. Tragic story from the NFL uh, told by Dr. Aiken uh, in his commentary. Uh, some of you remember uh, Bernie Kosar, who was a quarterback. He made tens of millions of dollars playing in the NFL. And then after that, he became a businessman and made almost the same amount. And yet he had to file for bankruptcy. A reporter asked him about this, and he revealed that there was a time in his life when he was paying 60 cell phone plans. He told the reporter that he only used one cell phone, but he was paying for 60 other people. In addition to this, he had attorneys, he had an ex-wife, he had the IRS, he had teammates who were asking for provision, economic recession, and foolish financial advisors left him bankrupt. Everyone had their hand out, and he didn't manage things wisely. That's the idea there in verse 11. That dissatisfaction comes in part because of everyone who is around you. Thirdly, there's restlessness. Not only is there oppression that you might create, not only is there dissatisfaction with life, but there's also a sense in which you cannot sleep. 
Sweet, he says, is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The love of money will rob you of sleep. The sleep of the honest worker, he says, is sweet. This person is not driven by greed. This person is not tossing and turning at night thinking about lawsuits, financial crashes or employees or profits and losses, but the other person is, right? The greedy person here cannot sleep. They've got this full stomach, not just because they have indigestion problems, right, uh, due to rich foods, but, but they actually are filled with anxiety and they're, they're not content, they're not at peace. Again, we're back to Ecclesiastes 4. Remember that verse in uh, verse 6 where he says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. Right? Here, here's another example of the person who has the two handfuls who cannot get enough. They can't sleep. Where are you? They got the other person's got one hand working, one hand for life, for enjoyment, for family, for helping others. They, they, they sleep like a baby. So you see Solomon's heaping up reason after reason after reason why you should not have an excessive love of money. One of these reasons would be sufficient, but he just keeps piling them up. Number four, loss. One of the dangers of wealth is that you can lose it. One of the dangers of building your life around accumulating more and more stuff is what's mentioned here in verses 13 and 14. There is a grievous evil or a sickening evil that I have seen under the sun, riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. So there's hoarding here. Some of you have read When Helping Hurts. This could be a book here, When Hoarding Hurts. It, it actually hurts you, and one of the reasons why you might really get hurt by it is specified in the next verse. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. So there's been some poor investment that's been made, and this person is experiencing great grief. Back to the NFL, statistics say within two years of leaving professional football, 78% of the players are bankrupt or are in financial distress. You can have it all and then boom, it all goes away. And here Solomon says one of the problems of, of these bad ventures is you have nothing to pass on. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand, nothing to, to give. And so we see one of the great dangers here of, of wealth is that you can lose it. Now, the Bible doesn't call us to hoard. The Bible doesn't call us to make foolish investments. The Bible calls us to be generous and to invest in the kingdom. That's a great investment. Number five, there's death. Another reason not to pursue more and more stuff is that you're going to die. Right? Solomon just keeps reminding us we're going to die. All right, so let's all be clear on that. And here he says it in a proverbial way that's picked up by Job and Paul when he says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. How was that? Naked. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. We don't take anything with us. We, how, how do the little babies come into the world? We've had many of them in our church. They, they don't come all decked out, do they? Yeah, they... they they come naked. My parents will tell you that it was about two years before I wanted to wear clothes. Um, I, was, I could be found at my neighbor's house eating ice cream, they tell me, with no clothes on. But um, I still would like to live like that, honestly, but I can't do it. Can't do it. 
I love the Garden of Eden. I really like that scene. Um, I don't know. That's not in my sermon notes. But anyway, you, you, ca- you can't take it with you. It's a bit like Monopoly. You know? it's, I don't know if you've played Monopoly lately. You can, you can earn all that, that stuff, but then you've got to put it all back in the box. And that's like life. Maybe you heard the old country song, Trailer Hitch. I've quoted enough hip-hop recently. I'll give you a little country. I drove a Penske recently. I listened to some country. I don't know why, no why, everybody want to die rich. Diamonds, champagne, work your way down that list. We try, everybody tries, tries to fit into that ditch. You can't take it with you when you go. Never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch. Well, Jesus calls that sort of thing foolish, doesn't he? Luke chapter 12, he says, fool, this not your soul is required of you. What on earth have you been doing? Think about Steve Jobs. He died with an, a net worth of $10.2 billion. But when he died, just like us, he will leave the world the same way, with nothing. That's what he says here. Verse 16, there's a sixth reason why we should not pursue more and more and more. Misery. It's an invitation to a miserable life. Again, this is the unrighteous rich. This is uh, the person that's living life devoid of God. There's no mention of God here. And we're going to get to how God does give some people wealth uh, in the next paragraph. But here, he's talking about the person that's trying to live life with, with God not in the center. Right? He says, this also is a grievous evil, just as he came, he shall go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness. What a sad picture here. In much vexation and sickness and anger. What does this quest for more and more bring? A lonely, joyless existence. An angry existence. An irritated existence. A sick existence existence. This is given for our, for our good. This is given for our wisdom. You see, without God's grace to enjoy abundance, everything that money brings leaves us joyless. God has to be central. Now, he gives us a solution to it in 18 to 20. I'll come back to it, like I said, but let me just read it for you. Notice how this stands in great contrast with everything we've been saying. How the love of more and more brings despair and dissatisfaction and darkness and death Now he says, here's a scene of delight. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoices in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him, look at this, occupied with joy in his heart. So instead of living out your days in darkness and vexation and sickness and anger, God occupies your entire life with joy. That's how good God is. But it comes from receiving his grace. It comes from recognizing his grace. It comes from having a relationship with God and seeing all things Uh, in relation to him. We'll come back to that in a moment, but let me finish the problems here. Two more. Discontentment and hunger. These are, in many ways, just restating what's been said because, again, the ends uh, relate to the beginning of this uh, text. So he, he begins to talk a little bit more specifically about a person who has everything but is discontent. Specifically, this person has wealth, a big family, and a long life. Three things that were signs of blessing but 
without God, leaves this person discontent. So first, he says, they have a full bank account, but they're discontent. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he likes nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Think about what this guy has here. He's wealthy and he's famous. That's honor. But he doesn't have joy. To be wealthy and to have fame but not have joy is vanity. We're not told why the stranger enjoys it. We're just told that this person doesn't enjoy it. So, so see here that, that prosperity isn't always as good as it appears. Because stuff and joy are separate. Riken puts it this way. The gifts that God gives us and the power to enjoy those gifts come separately. This is why having more money can never guarantee that we will find any enjoyment. Without God, we will still be discontent. It is only when we keep him at the center of our existence that we will experience real joy in the gifts God may give. The fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of knowledge. It is also the source of satisfaction. I remember many Christmases waking up, getting a, a, a toy, and you read on the box, batteries sold separately, right? It's such a bummer. You got this new toy, but you don't have any batteries. And it's like that here with joy and possessions. Joy is sold separately. The joy is not bound up in the thing. The joy is found in relationship to God, right? And receiving his, his grace, you can have everything he says, full bank account, even be famous, but have a joyless existence. One of the rappers I like to listen to in my impressive workouts is, is 1K Foo. I don't know if anybody listened to 1K Foo this week, but he's got this great line, I just want the lamb, you can have the Lamborghini. I just want the lamb. And that's what we can all have, Jesus Christ. We can't all have a Lamborghini. And that wouldn't bring the kind of joy that Ecclesiastes is talking about anyway. But we can have him. And secondly here, he says, this discontent person has a full quiver, but is discontent. This was a sign, again, of great prosperity to the Jewish individual. Many of our church also enjoy that, apparently. The full minivan, right? And here he says, if a man fathers a hundred children. Now, some of you are trying to reach that. I know, Okay. You're very skilled in this. But, but here he says, the man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied. You see that? Soul not satisfied. With life's good things, he also has no burial, a sign of a curse. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. What a picture here. It's a shocking illustration that the teacher uses to say that this stillborn child is better off. He goes on to say, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness. It comes in vanity because its delivery is ineffective. It goes in darkness before it ever sees the sunlight. And then he says, its name is covered in darkness. Not because the child doesn't have a name, but because death hides the child's identity and personality. And that's why it's so tragic, it's so sad. No one gets to know the child. It has no son, but then Solomon says in verse 5, but it does find rest. 
rather than the discontented person. He doesn't have to endure the suffering of this life. And best of all, the little one, I think, finds eternal rest with God. It finds rest, but the discontented person does not. Now, the point of this analogy is not for us to to answer all of our questions related to this, this tragic issue. The point is to emphasize, through this shocking comparison, the tragedy of a discontented life. The tragedy of a life that is devoid of peace, that is devoid of joy. And the teacher says, here's what's tragic. A person who lives life devoid of God and doesn't have peace, though he or she may have everything, but they don't have it. So they have a a full bank account, but discontent. A full quiver, but they're discontent. Thirdly, a full lifespan, but discontent. Verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. He had what everybody wants, a long life. Big family, full bank account, joyless. It's tragic. Number eight, finally, hunger. We're back to this idea of satisfaction as this paragraph corresponds with the first one. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We eat a few hours later, some of us maybe just an hour, we're hungry again. Right? This person who wants more money, they, they, they get the raise, What do they want then? They want more. The appetite just goes on and on and on. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man who knows how to conduct himself before the living? So what what advantage is there of, of the poor individual who's wise, who knows how to get through life well? He says, here's the answer. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. The sight of the eyes, that is, this poor but wise individual can rest content with what God has given instead of wandering off into the endless pursuit of more and more. He says, and this is a vanity of striving after the wind. So what is it that does satisfy? Well, our souls can be satisfied, but not apart from God. Those who seek the Lord, the psalmist says, lacks no good thing. As the psalmist said in Psalm 107, for he satisfies the longing soul. Or as Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Well, that takes us into the pleasures of God. Briefly, let's look at verses 18 to 20, the bullseye, the solution to this problem, the pleasures of God. Regarding the contented life, again, Solomon drops us off in this little oasis in the middle of a desert. And he tells us to feast on this. This also is very similar to what Paul says later in 1 Timothy 6. When Paul said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't put your hope in riches. Put your hope in God, who provides us with everything for our enjoyment to his glory. Having not mentioned anything about God, now God is mentioned repeatedly in this little paragraph, in verses 18 to 20 which shows us, it underscores for us, that joy and satisfaction are found in God. Joy is God-centered. And without God, there's neither meaning nor joy. God is better than money. He brings lasting joy and pleasure. And the ability to enjoy God's grace, the ability to enjoy his gifts, is, is, is by us receiving his grace. Instead of striving 
Now it, the focus is on receiving. Because meaning and joy is derived by receiving God's grace. The contented life is a life that recognizes God's grace in the everyday things of life. And so he, he gives us three little things through which we should worship God. Three little things through which we can enjoy God. And they are very simple. And it's very encouraging because we can all do these. <laughs> right? Sometimes you read some of the verses in the Bible, and like, I don't know if I can do that. But how about let's eat? All God's people say, amen. How about let's drink? Amen. How, <laughs> how, about, how about let's work? Okay? I like the eating you're saying. Well, let's start with that one then. Eating and drinking, these are symbols of the contented life. What a good God to give us food and drink. And to, to give it to us as a sign of his grace, as a sign of his blessing. I love 1 Kings 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. That pleases God. To receive his gifts with gratitude pleases him. And that is a little micro picture of the macro, the macro blessing and provision that we will have when Christ makes all things new. As we eat and drink with him. So to enjoy a good meal with, with good friends is a gift of grace. We should be thankful in those moments. God gives us those, those moments. Kohelet here says, friends, enjoy your pancakes. Enjoy them to God's glory. Put the maple syrup all over them and enjoy them. Or your kale smoothie and your quinoa, uh, whatever, whatever is your thing, right? Enjoy your chips and salsa with great gratefulness in your heart. Enjoy your ice-cold cheer wine on a hot day. Enjoy that camping trip as you grill burgers. Enjoy the moment when you make a toast to your friends as you think about all that God has done for you. All of this done rightly. All of this received with gratitude in our hearts to God. How is it that we, we glorify God and enjoy him when we're not all gathered together in the holy place? It's as we go out in life and do the things we do as creatures, like eating and drinking, that we do so in reference to God, that we do so in recognition of God, that we don't become ascetics who think we are to say no to every pleasure in creation. No, Paul tells us that he's given us everything for our enjoyment. Those people who tell us to not enjoy the gifts of creation remind me of C.S. Lewis who said, there is no good in trying to be more spiritual than God. He's given us these things, and he's told us, right? In fact, he's going to add to it. I can't wait to get to this one in chapter 9, verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. It's a commandment, right? And in verse 9, enjoy the life with the wife whom you love. Now, this is a good God who says, you're not just going to have to endure existence, but I'm going to bless you with the gifts of creation, with the gifts of companionship, with the gifts of cheerfulness. And when you receive them rightly, consume them rightly, enjoy them rightly, with gratitude in your heart, I'm glorified. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. My friends, God aims to be glorified both in creation and redemption. He created our tongues. God did. He created taste buds. 
He created our digestive systems with infinite wisdom and amazing goodness. The question is, do we recognize it in the everyday life? Even our toil, he says, is enjoyable. We're made in God's image. We've already covered this. And our God is a worker. God who looks over his creation with delight and says, it is good. Has made us in his image so that we enjoy the things that we get to labor in. What a blessing it is that God has made it where our work, even though frustrated by the fall, can be enjoyable. You see, the life of this contented person is so occupied with joy, I love it, verse 20, that he doesn't think about vanity. The person who is saying vanity is not occupied with joy. Right? The, the person here is, time is flying by. Because he's occupied, she is occupied with joy. Therefore, rest, contentment, gratitude are not tied up with how much you have. It has to do with the kind of relationship with God you have. Rest, contentment, and gratitude are not tied up with how much you have, but with what kind of relationship with God you have. The person who finds real joy is the person who knows the God of grace intimately. We treasure him not just on a Sunday in the gathering, though we do, but we treasure him in the everyday, receiving of his gifts. Because God's grace is seen not just in redemption, but also in creation. Our food is a gift of God, this text says. And Paul says our salvation, it is the gift of God. By his grace, God sent forth his son to save and satisfy us forever. And our Savior truly and fully satisfies. The Christ who came, when he came, what was he doing? What did he get accused of? Being a drunkard and a glutton. Our Christ dined with sinners. And then he died for sinners. And this Christ transforms greedy sinners like Zacchaeus and makes them generous servants. That's what the gospel does. And the gospel gives us hope that Christ will come one day and reverse the curse, make all things new, and we will have a meal with him. And we will say collectively with the redeemed from around the world, this is a gift of God. This is a gift of God. The question is, will we turn away from greed and pursue the God of grace? That's where lasting joy and meaning are found. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. I pray you can say that today. You say it on Monday. You say it every day. That we would glorify him, not just in this gathering, but in the world. God aims to be glorified in both places. Father, we thank you for your word today. Help us to be aware of your grace in everyday life. To be a grateful, humble, generous people as recipients of grace on top of grace. Fill our hearts with joy. Pray you would do. Ecclesiastes 5.20 Occupy our hearts with joy all the days of our lives as we're considering your grace even through the hardship that we could say with Paul, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing because we know you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done on our behalf. 
We pray as we prepare to take the table now, you would increase our gratitude for all that you are and all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray.